0: Well, good morning, church. Do you believe that people can really change? The the, the beautiful truth of Christianity is that God changes people. He transforms sinners into trophies of grace. So the, the beauty of the gospel is that it changes hearts and lives. God takes wicked, broken people, even folks who have hurt people, and he can transform them through the power of his gospel into beautiful new creations in Christ, whom he gives a mission to change the world. And and so in our text, this this long uh, story that, that Pastor Bill has read to us, we see clear evidence here that God has transformed Judah into a different man than he was 20 years earlier. And that would be the man of Genesis chapter 37 and 38 because he was truly a scoundrel back then. In fact, we would, we would today label Judah, the Judah of Genesis 37 and 38, as an abuser. And frankly, that's, that's like the unpardonable sin in our culture today. But Bell but reminded us last week that it was Judah's idea to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. And we see in, back in Genesis 38, the, the sordid story of how he had treated his daughter-in-law, Tamar. But God had plans to make Judah into the leader of a tribe from which the Messiah would come, the actual lion of the tribe of Judah. And so here we see in our text that, that Judah had indeed been transformed. And so I just want to walk through it with you this morning and, and look at how God had changed this man's life, and what evidence we see of that in, in this text. And so the first, the first point this morning is that Joseph's brothers, not just including Judah, but, but all of his brothers had, had changed from a, a fratricidal group of men into a true band of brothers. God had transformed these men from a group of people who were literally willing to murder a brother into a loyal band of of brothers. And so over the last couple chapters, we've seen some tests that Joseph put his brothers through to find out if their hearts had truly changed, if these were the same men who had thrown him into the pit and had sold him into slavery, or if these were new men whose hearts God had transformed. And so today we look at this final test. We might call it the silver cup test, And Pastor Kent Hughes explains what Joseph was doing here. He writes that Joseph's method was to reconstitute the temptation to which his brothers had succumbed when they sold him into slavery. So that's actually what he's doing, what's going on with this whole business of putting the cup into Benjamin's sack and seeing, would the the brothers, to save their skin, would they abandon Benjamin? Or to their own harm, would they stay together? Would they stay with him? And so remember here, when you think of this silver cup, that these brothers had sold Joseph into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. So throughout there's these little, there's all kinds of needling going on, okay? Um, And and so this was their final exam, and frankly, they didn't even realize it. So look at verse 1 here again with me. Then he commanded the steward of the house, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Now, it's important that we remember here that, that Joseph loves Benjamin. Okay, Joseph does not have it out for Benjamin, but he needs to find out if his brothers uh, are, are, are truly changed. Are they going to be loyal? Will they protect Benjamin? all right, such that he's willing to actually put Benjamin through a few days of discomfort, okay? And, and so um, he loved Benjamin, and, and in this last chapter, we've seen evidence that God has worked grace in his brother's lives. Um, a, a, as younger men, we, they had responded to their father's sinful favoritism of Joseph with hatred and violence, but we saw here last night and in the sermon last week, when we looked at Genesis chapter 43— We saw here that they had responded towards Joseph's favoritism towards Benjamin at the table where Benjamin got the big portions, and and they didn't, right? They they had actually gotten five times as much food. And I think it's important for us to remember they're coming from a famine-type situation where they were hungry, okay? I don't know if you've ever been hungry before, and then suddenly you go from famine to feast. Um, Food can be compelling, And and comparison can be compelling. And instead of at the table getting angry with Benjamin, they they had actually, actually with grace, um, uh, eaten and and drank and were merry with Joseph, and merry with their brothers. Okay? But now Joseph wanted to find out what they were really made of. What would... Would, as soon as they got off on their own, would they turn on Benjamin? Would he turn the heat up on them all? Would they, would they, would they turn on Benjamin when it looks like Benjamin had actually stolen his silver cup? Would they turn on him and say, that's it? Uh, you, you little mongrel, we're gonna, you know, you're going to get what you deserve. You can go on back and be his slave. Or would they stick together? And so we read in verse 3, as, as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had, they had gone only a short distance from the city. And so we get a sense that these brothers are headed home, and they're relieved, and they're happy. And they, they may be saying to each other, you know, that worked out a whole lot better than we thought, right? I mean, you remember how fearful they were going back before the man. And they'd gotten their brother back, who had been imprisoned, and they'd had a big meal together, and now they got their donkeys loaded with food back to, back to their father in the land of Canaan. And so this is a happy caravan here. And, and so they, they may even almost be a little bit tempted towards smugness. Like that was great, worked out. And you know, of course, that's usually when the bottom drops out, right? Uh, a little too good to be true. And so it was. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this? cup that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination, you have done evil in doing this. Now, maybe you noticed as, as uh, Pastor Barry, as Elder Barry was reading this text, maybe you noticed that word divination. Um, I noticed that. kind of raised my eyebrow a little bit, and I just want to point out that the text here doesn't say that Joseph actually practiced divination with his silver cup. Uh, it simply says that this was part of the ruse. Was there deceit going on here? Yes, there was. You can decide whether that was sinful on Joseph's part or not. Um, but that was part of the ruse of trying to intimidate these men and to, to get them you know, to have this idea that you know, uh, this man has great power and his eye is on you. Okay? So it was part of the, the whole, that, that whole thing was part of the ruse. So in verse 6, we read that when he overtook them, that would be the steward. He spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? So they they protested vigorously, and actually they made a pretty sound argument. Uh, look, if we were thieves, there's no way we would have brought back the money that, that somehow accidentally got put in our sacks before. We've, we've already proven our integrity. And in fact, they were confident, maybe a little bit angry, because here they are being insulted. I don't know if you've ever been falsely accused by somebody, um, but, but I don't like that one bit, and neither did they. And so you, you see a, a really kind of uh, a strong statement they make here. In, rep, in in response, they say, "Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die." I mean, that hadn't yet been in the servant in, in the servant's words anything about death. They're like, "Look, we're so sure of our inno- of our innocence. You find it with one of in, in one of our in one of our will die, and we'll be my lord's servants." And so the steward said, "Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant." And the rest of you will be innocent. So in a a sense here, this Egyptian steward is being the the better man, the the, the merciful one here, right? So then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And so you can imagine this process from the oldest to the youngest. You know, a little bit of righteous indignation here. Uh, There you go. Why don't you dig a little deeper? See if you find it. You know, each guy kind of standing there, arms crossed, you know, um, you know, vindicated, right? Until it got to the youngest. So we read in verse 12. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Look at how they respond. Then they tore their clothes. And every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Now, this, this response is remarkable. One, one writer noted that when Joseph disappeared, it was only Jacob who tore his clothes. Now, all the brothers do this, the first sign of fraternal solidarity. Now, we, 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 we read about people getting upset in the Bible and tearing their clothes, and it might seem a little bit strange to us. Um, you know, maybe you think of like the Incredible Hulk, you know, rah, tearing his shirt off or something like that. Well, You need to understand—you know what this would be like? It'd be like somebody getting so upset that they went outside and took a sledgehammer to their prized car. Okay, that's what—economically, that's what's going on. Imagine you have a car that you've loved and babied, and you wash it and you wax it, and you get so upset that there's a guy out there with a sledgehammer just bashing in this car that he loves. Economically, that's what—that's the comparison, okay? Okay. uh, a, a pair of clothes was, was maybe your most prized possession, it an incredibly valuable commodity, a rare commodity. Most people couldn't afford more than the, the pair of clothes they're wearing now. So to rip your clothes off was a sign of, of just like uh, of, of great angst, okay? Great angst. Um, the world is crashing down. The way Vodibachum, I appreciate what he wrote. He, he wrote, he wrote this about, about, about their response. He, he wrote, in their minds, this was the end of their lives, the end of their clan. This was the end of God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In a very real sense, they're taking an emotional walk in Joseph's shoes, the ones that he had walked in 20 years before, even if it is only temporary. But what amazes me is they didn't just rend their clothes. Um, what did they do? Well, they, they saddled up their donkeys and they went with Benjamin back to the city. Now, there were probably some words with Benjamin. What have you done? What have you done to your father? What have you done to us, you greedy mongrel? And I'm sure Benjamin's like, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Right? I'm sure there was some back and forth as they're on their way back to the, back to the city. But the, the truth is they left no man behind. They went with him. They, they demonstrated loyalty. They're, 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 they, went from, they went from throwing their brother into a pit, selling him off to, sla- to slavers when they finally had, 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 had given up their murderous intents 20 years ago with a favored son to now saying, we love our father so much that, that we're going to stick with his favored son to the end. There's no way we're going home without Benjamin. We are in this together. And so what we see here by their actions, is that these men had had changed. They had indeed been transformed by God. They had passed Joseph's final exam with flying colors. But we also see in this text that Joseph wasn't quite finished with them yet. And and so he set the stage for us to see what is in Judah's heart. And in the province of God, Judah is actually the one that God is going to work through to bring his Messiah into the world. And so that leads us to our second point, and that is that we see here that Judah had changed from a man of pride, which is what we see in, in chapter 37, pride and greed. and 38, we see all kinds of pride and, and um, in Judah. He had changed from a man of pride to a man of penitence. And so we read in verse 14 that when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, they fell before him to the ground. Now this was actually... The third time, the text tells us that Joseph's brothers bowed before him, not knowing it was Joseph, uh, but in fulfillment of this dream that God had given to Joseph back in Genesis chapter 37. So they fell before the ground, and then Judah said to them, or I'm sorry, Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you've done? So he's still messing with them. Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And again, the ruse. And then we see Judah rise up. And in verse 16, and Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Now now here we see several things. We see Judah— who was the fourth-born son, so not the one that you would expect to be the spokesman, okay? The fourth-born son stepping up into a leadership role. Joseph is seeing this. His brothers are recognizing this. And we really saw this begin last, last week in chapter 43. But here in chapter 44, we see Judah mentioned three times. And so now he is the spokesman for the brothers, And and you see here again that that, that he says, we're in this together. Uh, We're not going back to our father. We're all going to be your slaves, even though it was Benjamin's sack. And it's interesting here that he notes their guilt. He acknowledges their guilt before God. And and notice here, with the words that he says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. It it, it wasn't Joseph who who had uncovered their guilt. It was God himself. Now, he wasn't confessing specifically to taking Joseph's silver cup. He knew by now that they hadn't taken it. He knew that he hadn't taken it for sure. But what he was doing was confessing to his overall guilt before a holy God many years before. You know, it's interesting that when we carry the burden in our hearts of long-term guilt, it doesn't take much for that to come to mind. Right? When there's something from the past that we've done, of which we uh, have not found forgiveness, uh, uh, for which we feel shame and guilt, it, it doesn't take much for that just to pop straight into mind. And that's what's going on, I believe, in Judah's heart here, right? You know, you're, you're, going, you're, you're cruising through life, and maybe you have a conversation with somebody, and that person didn't even intend. They don't even know. Or maybe there's a film you're watching, right? And, and it's, it's, it's some category pops up and suddenly you're just right there with those like blood-soaked hands, so to speak, right? Uh, with your guilt. And, and so there it is. And so for the Christian, what we do with our guilt matters, right? Uh, do we just try to conceal it? Do we, do we go to other places mentally or, or, you know, go eat something just to try to forget about it? Or do we confess it to God? Believing in faith, what the Bible says, that, that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If God says clean, that's what the blood of Christ is for, the most powerful uh, atonement and redemption. He, 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 we're, we're clean indeed. So sometimes we have to remind ourselves of that. Sometimes we've got to remind the devil of that verbally. That that he has indeed forgiven and made us clean. But what do we do with guilt? Guilt locked in a closet festers. It grows. It becomes ugly. It becomes monstrous sometimes. Sometimes it leads us right back into the same category of of sin. So we see here an acknowledgement. Even you could say a confession. We see penitence in, in Judah's heart here. God had changed Judah from a man of pride Proud people don't acknowledge their guilt before a holy God uh, to a penitent man. But we also see, and and I think this is the bigger point here, Judah had not only changed, he had been transformed. And this is our third point this morning. Judah had been transformed from a selfish man to a man marked by self-sacrifice. In in Genesis 37, we see his greed. In Genesis 38, we just see uh, just, just, you know, ugliness in how he treats his, 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 his daughter-in-law, right? And just wickedness and, and selfishness, which was underneath the lust and just the way he reacted to to her when she, when she got pregnant. Well, well, here we see a man of, of, of remarkable self-sacrifice. So he had been transformed. This wasn't the man of 20 years before. He'd been transformed. We don't know the whole story, how all God had worked in his life, but he had been transformed by God's grace. And we see evidence of this heart and character transformation as he pleads with Joseph for the well-being of his father, offering himself as a slave in Benjamin's place in, in one of the longest narratives in the book of Genesis. Here we have Judah, actually. Uh, 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 the, one of the very longest recorded narratives in, in the book of Genesis is actually Judah's words to Joseph. So in verse 17, Joseph says, far be it for me that I should do so, that would be enslave all of you. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. I'm sure that w- if, if they had at that point cut and run, I'm sure it would have been a pretty posh gig for Benjamin, okay? You can just imagine that. They all leave. He's like, hey, by the way, I'm your brother. You know, let's party. <laughs> um, that's not what happened, right? But, 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 you know, the ruse is still going on, and, and so he says, nope, it's just going to be Benjamin who's going to be my, my slave. But as for you, go in peace to your father. All right? So what we see here is that, that, that Judah loves his father. I mean, he could have given up here. He could have gone home and felt justified and said, I did my best. I did nothing wrong here. I, I pled for mercy. Nothing else could be done. Um, I'm sure dad would be happy to have the rest of us back without Benjamin than none of us at all, which you get the idea that maybe not. Okay, sadly. Um But 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 here we see Judah taking a risk. So look at verse 28, or verse 18, sorry. Um, So now Judah approaches. It says, Judah went up to him. That's a a bold thing to do to an Egyptian overlord when you're a, a shepherd, okay, from Canaan. I mean, he could have just snapped his fingers and, you know, you know, off with your head, right? Or something like that. So Judah went up to him and said, Oh my Lord, verse 18, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. In other words, you are, you are a supremely powerful man. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Now, here's what I want you to notice as we read Judah's words here to to Joseph. We we see here that, that Judah had every right to feel hurt for his father's sinful favoritism. Make no mistake, all right, Jacob was a loser of a father. He was awful, awful dad. Frankly, he was a scoundrel. And, and the fact that God chose to work through him and to turn his name into Israel, and some of the, some of the words we're going to see from God to, to Jacob uh, in, the, in the next couple chapters, okay? You know what? That, that is evidence of God's grace in election versus any kind of worthiness of humanity. All right? God took a scoundrel. Jacob was just a scoundrel, okay? Took a scoundrel, made him into a believer, and he believed in Yahweh, but he was just a, he was a lousy dad. Terrible, terrible example of a father throughout. I mean, and, and, and so, and yet God chose to work through him and change his name into Israel. So he gets all the glory in working through sinful people like us. If he could do that for Jacob, you know, dads, maybe you're not the perfect dad. I'm not the perfect dad. He can work through you. He can work his covenant blessings in your family through you. That wasn't in my notes. Um, that's just kind of, you know, off the, off the cuff here. But take heart, brothers, okay? You're probably not as bad a dad as Jacob. <laughs> and he worked, he, he worked through Jacob. Uh, so, so, so Judah could have just been so... I mean, he had every right to be angry with his loser father. Who, to just... Even here, you, you just see this favoritism, right? And you could think about not only as a, as a son to a father, but even like as a... You know, he doesn't mention Rachel. He, you know, Jacob's talking about my wife. He's talking about Leah. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, he's talking about Rachel, not Leah. I mean, you know, so even with his, mo- his mother's honor on the line, uh, you know, just J- Jacob was a lousy husband as well as a lousy dad, okay? Just a loser, frankly, if you ask me. And, and yet God worked through him. And so, so, but here what we see God has done in Judah's life is that his love for his father eclipses the hurt that he feels for his father's continual unrepentant sinful favoritism. And and you can see in his words that he's just come to grips with it. He's acknowledged. He acknowledges it in the way the way he recounts these things to Joseph, but he's forgiven it, and he's gotten over it, and he, he loves his dad more than he resents him. That's remarkable. So keep that in mind as you as, you, as, you, as we continue to read, love, true love covers a multitude of sins. And that's what we see in coming out of Judah's heart here. So he says, then your servant, my father said to us, and he's painting his father in a good light, not a bad light. But he says, your servant, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. Never mind you guys, the rest of you. That's, you guys are irrelevant. I don't really care about you all. It's what's implied, right? But he's, he's just speaking of his dad in a po- positive way here. You know that my wife bore me two sons, one left me, and I said, surely he's been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. In other words, I'll die. Uh, Because I care about Benjamin a whole lot more than the rest of you. And Judah, again, recognizes that and still loves his dad, and still wants to protect his dad. That's remarkable love here, folks. That's real love. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. This is an example here of the truth we read in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2 through 3, which says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it will, may go well with you, and that you may, may live long in the land. So, children, are you honoring your parents? Do you honor your parents? Um, even imperfect parents, even if you recognize inconsistencies and sin in your parents' lives, do you, do you honor them? That it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. This is important to the Lord, right? This is this is one of His Ten Commandments, even. Um, it's important that you honor your father and mother. And you know what? This doesn't just go to young people, um, maybe older folks. Do you honor your, your parents, even when they may not be worthy, necessarily, uh, of that honor? Do you honor your mother and father? And that can be hard. But what we see here is that Ju- Judah's Selfless love for his father reminds us of perfect love. The the perfect love of his descendant Jesus' love for his father. Jesus said in John 14, 31, he told his disciples, I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. What a beautiful picture of a total sinful, scoundrel, corrupt Wicked man who God had transformed to a point where he could love his father like this. To then point us to the love of our perfect Savior and his love for his heavenly father. Which is the model for all of us in, in loving our mothers and our fathers and those that God has put into our lives. So we see here evidence of God's grace in Judah's life by his love for his father. But also we see that he had become a man of his word. You know, Psalm 15 says in verse 1, O Lord, who will sojourn into your tent? Who will dwell on your holy hill? And then and there's a few things listed there. But in, in verse 4, it says, He who swears his own hurt and does not change. Well, this is what we see Judah modeling here. He had become a man of his word. We saw last week in Genesis chapter 43, that he had, he had made a pledge to his dad to bring Benjamin back. He said in Genesis 43, 8 through 9, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and all our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, let me bear the blame forever. And so now... Judah recounts this. He says the same to Joseph. And it's interesting here. Judah's just speaking transparently and honestly. There's no guile in his words. And so he says simply to Joseph in verse 32, For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Do you think that impacted Joseph? Let me tell you, it did. Um, He's recognizing God has changed this man. Um, It's all he can do to hold back the tears. And we're going to see Robbie gets the joy of of preaching this text next week. Um, Robbie, we have wherever you are, there you are, brother. We have great expectations, let me just say. No pressure, brother. Um, This is an awesome text. I can't read through this without crying when I get to next chapter, uh, chapter 45. Well, why? What is setting the stage? Joseph's seeing God's work in his brother's life and heart here. So he had become a, a man of, of true love. He'd become a man of honor. And he had also became a man of sacrifice. He actually offered his own freedom for that of his brother and his father for others. And so verse 33 through 34 here, we see Judah offering his life as a sacrifice for others. And so he concludes to Joseph, he says, now therefore, Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to the my Lord. A better translation of that Hebrew word would be a slave. Okay. Let me remain as a slave to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Pastor Vodibachum writes... The defining moment in Judah's ascension to prominence comes here at the end of chapter 44. Judah has made a pledge to his father, and he intends to keep it, even at great cost to himself. He is prepared to lose all, his own family, his home, his freedom. Remember, he's got kids back at home. He's got a family back at home. He's willing to lose all of that in order to keep his pledge to his father. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. As Judah offers himself as a ransom for his brother, his transformation, Bodhi Bakum's words, is complete. He has gone from being the leading voice in the course that led to Joseph's exile to being the lone voice surrendering himself and his freedom in order to return Benjamin to his father. There are echoes of his greater son, Jesus, who said in John fifteen five, greater love has no one than this and someone laid down his life for his friends this is powerful brothers and sisters and and and, and the gospel is powerful but the, the fact that god transforms people is powerful that is why we're here today not because we are righteous in our own skin in our own flesh in our own character or personality because we are not Every one of us I know, I mean, I'd be shocked if you've been, if you've lived very long on this, in this earth, when we were talking about guilt a little while ago, I imagine something painful came into your mind, okay? Something that you really wish you could go back and undo, okay? We are not perfect. None of us. There's none righteous. No, not one. And even though I tell you that we're all in the same boat, that really isn't of a whole lot of, 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 of help to you because we're all in the same boat of being depraved and having done things that we are truly ashamed of to our core. The good news is that God transforms people. And, and he, if he could transform a total loser, scoundrel, wicked abuser like Judah into, the, into this man that we see now standing before Joseph, right? Right? who who would be the uh, uh, great-great-great-grandfather of the line of the tribe of Judah, if God can do that for him, he could do beautiful things in you and through you. So if God has transformed you, and I'm assuming, since I'm speaking to a lot of Christians here, that he has transformed the vast majority of us, okay? If he has transformed you, remember that with humility and with gratitude— that, that God specializes in redeeming sinners by His grace. And that's what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, or do you not know, in, in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, or we do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. Okay, right there, if we read those words, and if we're honest, there should be plenty of Guilt creeping up in all kinds of memories and hearts, right? Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. that You know what? There should be as much or more guilt than the sexually immoral. We just don't realize the, the wickedness of our idolatry. Whoring after materialism instead of Christ, okay? I think that bothers him more than the sexual immorality, to be honest with you. I'm not saying the sexual immorality is no big deal. It is a big deal. But the idolatry, the fact that we we care more about status and stuff than Christ, that's a big deal to the Lord. Nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, there it is, straight up, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, people who take take, take advantage of people, okay? None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he writes this. And and such were some of you. Maybe you could have said, such were all of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you understand that? He's saying you are clean indeed because of the powerful work of Christ on the cross. The atoning work of His blood. So that's who you were, but now you're beautiful in His eyes. And what he's saying is so live beautifully. But don't despise God's transforming work in your life or in other people's lives. And what do I mean by that? Well, you know what? If you say there are categories of sin where we're going to put a scarlet letter on your forehead for the rest of your life that you can never wash off, adulterous, abuser, You can never wash that off. That's a sin that is like unpardonable by society. And so it's going to be unpardonable to us. If that's how we approach people, guess what? We're despising God's transforming work. Do you understand that? If we're defining people by who they were and what they did, instead of who they are, based on what Christ has done for them and the work God has done in their lives, we're despising his transforming work. So let's not do that transformation is powerful. You know, our, our, our society gets that. I mean, the, the best stories that, that, that grab us and make money are, are works of transformation, right? How many of you ever gone and seen the, the Broadway play Les Miserables or listened to the soundtrack? Some of you raised your hand a little bit. You know what? I bet more of you have, and you just don't feel like raising your hand because you're Baptist. I don't know what the problem is. White Baptists, you know, just sit here. It's holy to not hardly move. Um, I don't know what's wrong with this, but anyway, um, something's wrong with this. Um, you know what? Victor Hugo's story is all about that. That's the power of that story, right? Um, I mean, uh, this is a Catholic guy who gets it. So he writes a story about Jean Valjean, this hardened criminal who, then in, in a society at the time that's marked by justice, not grace who spends 19 years in prison. He's released with this yellow passport, which, which basically means that he's not going to find—he's uh, not going to be able to find lodging anywhere. He's, he's marked as a former convict. He's an outcast. But he's taken in by this kindly bishop. But his heart is still hard. And so, you know the story, right? He, he steals from him. This guy gives him hospitality. He, in a, a warm meal and a clean bed to stay the night on, in the middle of the night, Valjean gets up. He has—he has, he has tempted by kind of the old man, right? There's a struggle, but he's tempted, he's desperate, and he steals the bishop's silverware and silver plates in the middle of the night. He's caught, arrested by the authorities, dragged back to the bishop's door, and in 19th century France, and in the 19th century French penal system, he's got a really bad future awaiting him now because of his crimes. But wait, instead of Confirming that, yes, this is a man who had wickedly abused his hospitality by robbing him of his family heirlooms that were valuable. The bishop, to I'm sure great chagrin of his wife, tells the police that he had given the silver to Valjean. And, and, and he admonishes him for leaving behind a set of silver candlesticks, which demonstrate that his depravity, hadn't there at least had been some kind of a thing going on right? Some kind of battle of the inclinations. And and he gives them the silver candlesticks right there. And as he secures Valjean's release, Bishop Muriel tells Valjean, and of course you could debate the theology here, but that he has purchased his soul for God with this silver. And he exhorts him to use this gift to become an honest man. And you know what Valjean is? Transform. It was a, a picture here, the silver, was a picture of grace, God's grace, changing a heart and a life. And that's the whole rest of the story. It's how this man's life, a hardened criminal, he is transformed by this act of grace to a man who devotes his life to serving God by helping and caring for the downtrodden. And and his life has all kinds of ripple effects of grace and, and, and transforming other lives in the story. And you see a juxtaposition between his character and the other character, right, who hunts him down throughout his life, who believes that that men can never change. People have never been transformed. So you have grace, a picture of grace, versus a picture of law, right? Legalism versus the joy of grace. So so where are you? I mean, people who have been transformed delight in transformation. Do you believe? Do you believe that that God transforms people? And if you do, then there's hope. Maybe, Maybe there's someone in your life who hasn't been transformed yet. (laughs) Or maybe they're on that road, and they're hard to live with. Um, There's hope, because God does transform. And you know what? You You have access to Him to ask Him to transform. You know, I thought of Saul, the terrorist persecutor, who was transformed into the apostle Paul. Now, we need to go back in time here and just try to imagine there were a lot of families who had been hurt by this man, okay? There were people who had moms and dads, maybe brothers and sisters, who had been dragged off to prison or even killed for their faith in Jesus Christ because of this guy, and God in fairly quick order transforms him into a new man. Can you, could you sit under his teaching? If that had happened to you, if he had done that to your family, could you sit there when he shows up in town and listen to him um, uh, exhorting a, a crowd to, to follow after Christ, sharing the gospel? Could you do that? Uh, that's, that's tough. That's tough. But it's about grace. And, and, and so, this man wrote to the Corinthians, therefore, if anyone, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. He's not just talking about you guys. He's talking about me himself. He's the guy who says, I'm the worst sinner I know. And he's not trying to sound hyperbolic or, or, or trying to sound holy. He meant it. He's like, I am the worst sinner I know, but I am new in him. I have been transformed. Well, has your life been transformed? Have you met Jesus. Have you been transformed? Are you being transformed today? Because you know what? This is a process. There's a sense in which we are, we are marked. We are justified. We are sanctified. We're declared righteous. We're set apart as righteous. But then we get to become what we are as we live out our life, as we're filled by the Holy Spirit. So Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's something we've got to do every day. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed by this world. Do not be conformed by this world, right? What is our world telling us? All kinds of unchristian stuff, right? Uh, it, it's, there's the siren of materialism and, and hedonism all around us. There, there's the, the, a lust for power, right? Even, doesn't matter whether you're liberal or conservative, it's the same, power. It's this siren uh, to have power over people and, and, and to try to put yourself above others. It's there. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, that's the hard stuff that comes, you may be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So brothers and sisters, as we're being transformed, In the image of his son. By the renewal of our minds. Let's keep our eyes on Christ. And let's continue to be transformed by his gospel. Let's pray together. We thank you Lord for this true story of many millennia ago. On the other side of the world in Egypt. A story that you used in the redemption. Your plan of redemption for your people, to, 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 to create a people who would walk with you, and, and through whom the world would be blessed by their Messiah. Lord, we thank you for the truths of this story, and we thank you for the fact that you not only transformed this wicked sinner, Judah, into a, the, the, the man that we see here in Genesis 44. But Lord, we thank you that you are still working at changing lives and transforming people today. Thank you for the work you've done in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the blood of of Christ, his sacrifice on the cross. And Lord, we we thank you that we have hope that you will continue this work in us and those that we love. We pray that you would continue to to turn us into uh, trophies of your grace. And I pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.